This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Misa. I'm Brian. And we're going to talk about Rite of Passage, a novel by Alexi Panshin. Is that how we pronounce his name? Yes. It can be for now. <laughs> okay. Uh, 1968 uh, novel. I believe the original novelette or novella or short story was from 63. And uh, Paul, you were the one who suggested we do this, right? I was the one who suggested this, yes. Mm. My fault. Because... It's kind of an antidote to uh, Heinlein. Is that the idea? Heinlein, but Heinlein light? Not not Uh, an antidote so much as an answer to Heinlein juveniles. uh, Heinlein liberal. Heinlein liberal? I'm not sure he's liberal. I'm not sure what he is, but he's certainly not um, incestuous. (laughs) (laughs) Heinlein incestuous, uh, creepy grandpa. Uh, who's kind of a transsexual sort of guy. But we like him anyways. I, I don't know. But uh, I've never read anything by Alexi Panchin before. No, neither. Oh. Me neither. Oh, I read the uh, the uh, Mask World books, which are really fun. They're, 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 they're not mind-blowing. They're just really, really pleasant. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're clever and, uh, and charming. I think that that's a good description of this book for the most part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are some, well, for the most part, there is a, an aspect I think is pretty hor- horrific. Yeah, there are a lot. But, but the, the, the tone is, the is tone, playful. Right. Uh, the Mask World books aren't anthropological SF, which this is. They're not political SF, which this is. They're, uh, they're confections. You know, they're, they're, the, the hero is a guy who makes his way through the universe by being good company. Um, so he's he's pretty good with uh, with uh, customs. He knows a bit of stuff. Um, he's kind of like uh, Doctor Who, if without any of the intelligence or powers or capacity or TARDIS. Um, <laughs> but he's he's very he's very pleasant, and uh, and you get it, it, there's a, there's a little of that kind of puckish, not black humor, but a little satire. Um, but it's it's very it's it's not laugh out loud funny like say Terry Pratchett. It's just a, a nice, pleasant smile of a book. Very, very different from Rite of Passage in that hmm. way. Hmm. So uh, how much do we think that this is a response to uh, Tunnel in the Sky? Because I, I think that there's certainly some aspect to it, but I'm not my, convinced that it's... My guess is uh, Starship Troopers is to the Forever War as Tunnel in the Sky is to Rite of Passage. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That's a very good analogy. I mean, we should, we should tell our listeners that Back in the 60s, Lexi Panchin wrote the first critical volume of Heinlein called Heinlein in Dimension. That's where I actually had come across Panchin first. This was back in the 80s. I had started reading Heinlein. I wandered into Forbidden Planet in New York City, and I saw this this Heinlein in Dimension book. I was like, what the heck is this? Okay, I will buy this because I've been reading Heinlein. I started reading, reading, reading. Okay, interesting, interesting, odd. Because, but because by this point, because that book had stopped Alliance Korea in the '60s, so I had because it doesn't mention any of the later stuff in the '70s. So I had read other stuff. It's like, okay, he he didn't go quite the way he thought he would. I actually didn't come across Rite of Passage till the '90s when a friend of mine suggested I ro- I read it for a role playing game. So hmm. I was like he. 
And I thought, Panchin wrote a novel? Because this was before the internet was really, really a thing. So you couldn't really look up this stuff that easily. So I, he wrote a novel too. So I looked at him and read the book. It's like, okay, I like this well enough. I reread it uh, a couple of oh, 2014, I think. It's like, and it struck me, this is a really a YA novel 30 years early. Mm-hmm. 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 You're right. Well, I mean, they had YA back then. It's just they didn't call it that. They didn't call it. They call that. Yeah, they called the juvenile. Yeah, juveniles. And then I realized, okay, so this is Panchin had clearly read Tunnel of Sky and other Heinlein juveniles and decided I can write them better. And this is what he came out of it. I, I was surprised how modern the tech seemed. Like um, that was one of the things that I, I I would have guessed that it would have been written in the '80s, actually. Uh-huh. With I you know how much really modern too. Yeah, I mean it, maybe the the attitude towards the girl was sort of modern. Mm-hmm. Um the sexuality was fairly modern. Um so yeah, I I was quite surprised that it had been written so early. Mm. Yeah, I didn't read anything about it and I thought it was pretty modern and I didn't know that Alexi was a guy either, I so I thought I was. Too. Yeah, I thought wow. I was reading a woman's book the whole time, um, <laughs> and it, it was only the cover that kind of gave me a clue that maybe this is kind of like older than I think. And, and mm. then I looked him up. Well, his wife, uh, his wife's name is Corey, and I always thought that was a man. I thought they were right, you know, right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's funny. Well, I think yeah. it, for me, it really felt like a new wave science fiction uh, piece. Uh, not stylistically. I mean, there aren't any style games here, no. so there's nothing in common with, say, you know, uh, Delaney. Um, but it it definitely is of a piece with uh, Le Guin, Russ, um, you know, the whole the whole left side of uh, of the American New Wave, um, and uh, it has the anthropological science fiction that you see in uh, Frank Herbert in Ursula Le Guin, mm-hmm. um, and the attitude towards sexuality. Again, this this is like it reminds me of, oh, you know, say Dahlgren or um, maybe maybe early Tiptree, where it's uh, it's it's science fiction in the, in the age of the sexual revolution. So you yeah. can have uh, uh, parents that are basically divorced and a mother that really doesn't care about her daughter, and that's okay. Um, and uh, you've got communal living, and you've got uh, uh, teenagers having sex, and it's fine. Um, and you know, the, again, in, in the American political scene, I, I would put this squarely on the left, squarely on the liberal side. It, it reminded mm. me a lot of Brave New World, like Brave New World light. Mm. Mm. You know, they have the colonies and the reservations, the life <laughs> in the ship is cushy, and, and then there's the subhumans out there. Mm. And, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I got to bring it up because I, I don't want anybody to think that I didn't see what Alexi Panchin was doing. Yeah. I, I want to be the first to say it. Guys, this is uh, history, not uh, science fiction, right? Only thing that's different is that it's it's a girl instead of a guy. This is the Spartans. Hmm. This is the Spartan youth being trained to do what? Go out and kill the helots. Mm-hmm. Go out oh. and dominate them. The mud eaters. The, po- the, the politics in here are horrific. Yeah, right? they are. So you're, we're talking about how lefty the book is. It ain't that lefty if, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the society. In fact, our heroine, she doesn't get too upset about the genocide. <laughs> She's a little bit upset. She's a little bit upset. She's, She's more upset than she would have been at the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah she, well, she, would, she wouldn't support it quite yeah. as much. But 
Um, it's a, it's, it's, to me, this is very, uh, like, if you go in reading this and just come out the other side and go, mm, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good book, um, which, which is what I was doing at the beginning. I was like, eh, well, right to the very, you don't expect that to, I mean, no. a little bit of a clue when they say we had 120 colonies and some died out and some had to be reprimanded, but yeah. that yeah. comes right out of the blue. Well, you get the first hint of it when you have a character called Morlock. And that tells you uh-huh. that you're going to have right. a far future world, which is going to be divided violently by caste, uh, unequally mm-hmm. by caste. And uh, that turns out to be exactly the case. Um, I, I agree that this is dystopian. Uh, and my first hint of that was when we had a ship eugenics officer, which just immediately yeah. 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 But I don't think this doesn't make this a left-wing book. Um, again, if this is a book of the 60s, it's a book that comes not out of a utopian moment, but out of a moment of struggle. Mm-hmm. And to have the youth be victimized, suffer, and be more noble than their elders is perfect for a book from 1963 68. Um, and if it shows the world not being improved by the youth, again, that's not surprising for uh, work from that time. Uh, I mean, again, think about um, Forever War. Think about uh, Ursula Gwynn's uh, the, world for the, wor- the Word for the World is Forest. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, this is... It, it is a young adult novel, so you have coming of age, but the coming of age is to teenagerdom, just to early adulthood. It's not like, say, Dune, where it's coming into power. Uh, our main characters are still not, they are adults, but they are not in power. The father is still in power, uh, and so in a sense, the patriarchy remains. There's a suggestion that the, the youth are going to try to change things, but how much can they really changed this this is this is a society that seems to be doomed to to uh do enact the same sort of things again and again because to suggest oh why don't we go down to a planet why don't we give up give a planet our stuff and why don't we end end this existence and that's violently resisted like no we'll, we'd be absorbed and we'd lose all our art and culture we have to remain above the others there's this reminds me of a couple of star trek episodes it also reminds me mm-hmm of what happens in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica where they do land on a planet and they're, okay, it's not a cushy existence on the ships, but it's it, they go down on a planet and it's not such a great existence that where they're living on this rainy, wretched planet and then the Cylons right. came. So it's, it's like they're better off uh, chilling around the uh, galaxy in, the, in these ships. Yeah, they have a pretty crappy government down there, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to go to Brian's point about the eugenics officer. I, I didn't see I didn't see the Spartan thing until quite late, and I'm like, duh! Oh my god, how did I miss it? So many aspects. I, I want to point them all out in case everybody's not as familiar with Spartan history as I am. Um, but uh, but before we go there, I want to talk about the eugenics officer. Obviously, this is something that the Spartans and other uh, ancient societies did. Uh, or some even modern societies still do, uh-huh. uh, or more recent societies anyways. But uh, I was thinking, no, that's not, I didn't think it was a historical thing. I thought it was, oh, it's Heinlein's response to the other thing that this book is, or Panchin's response to the other thing that this book is addressing, which is uh, a short novel uh, turned into a longer novel called Orphans of the Sky slash Universe. Yeah. Uh, oh, right. A great. Yeah, uh, the World Trip novel. Right, it's the so first one, isn't it? Heinlein's, uh, yeah, it's two parts, right? It's 
uh, universe and common sense. And uh, I saw a review, somebody said uh, that uh, great first half and then Heinlein loses interest <laughs> in the second <laughs> half, um, which is entirely possible. But um, universe is, is terrific, right? This is uh, the reason it's called universe, which is such a great title, is because they don't know they're living on a on asteroid that's been hollowed out and sent on a generation starship uh trip and mm. in the center of the i don't know sh- spaceship they have all these mutants who mm-hmm. uh because of radiation um and uh, other yeah space stuff are you know growing third eyes and and they are the and extra heads jojim right they're designed to be killed on site well they're they're, they're supposed to be killed on site right um, and there's no, like, uh, it's just sort of a religion. Um, it's thoughtless religion. Um, they don't know why these are happening or anything like that. And and so we could see the the society on board ship, which is really the only society we see in in um, the book, this book for a long time, as sort of just dealing with that problem, right? That's why you have a eugenics officer. It's It's to make sure that people, you know, don't, don't get too weird. Uh, maybe maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. But uh, that's why I thought it was dealing with. But of course, the Spartans they they put their babies out on the hill if it, they didn't look right, right? Uh-huh. It wasn't just the Spartans. And, the Greeks as a whole did that. Yeah, a, whole, a lot of Oedipus, Greeks, for example. Right, and um, and then of course the Spartans have this uh, the trial. Well, they don't call it a trial, but that's what it is, right? You you. Uh, send them out and uh, have them sp- go on basically boy scouting trips into the neighboring uh, conquered lands mm. where they are under equipped and need to survive. Um, if they kill a helot, that's great. Um, if they don't kill a helot, well, you know, who's to who's to know they didn't? Right? Wow, helots yep. died. Yep. that's the important part. Yep, rocks fall, helots die. And of course, this this is the thing that I was like, why, why is the mom in here? Why isn't the mom in here? That was the like the final thing. Duh! It's because the men and women don't live together; they're in separate dormitories, right? That that whole thing about the dormitories—that's that's all Spartan stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, duh! Now it all makes like I couldn't see what was sort of just there. And they have the common room too, right? So if if the, if the very are, common, go ahead. Yeah, they are very common. Well, then to carry this further, um, I, I think this is a brilliant insight. Um, and it was also an argument people were making at the time. By the way, it was a common argument to say that uh, in the sixties and seventies that the Soviet Union was Sparta and the U.S. was Athens. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Do you? So if the ships are Sparta, um, where does that leave all all those worlds? Those worlds seem to be. Uh, very, very backward. They don't seem to have the brilliance of uh, of Athens. Oh, so, Athens is elsewhere, obviously, because this this is the lower half of uh, of Greece, right? Not the upper half. Mm-hmm. So this is the because they, they don't. A pension goes on to make this point about there's no art. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the only art is physical, like uh, you know, dancing or whatever, right? So there's there's no art down on the on the ship. And the the colony art is is sort of primitive and shitty, um, so yeah, the, it's a critique of 
both, obviously. Yeah. Our, but our, we don't see a, another world. Yeah, our, our narrator is openly dismissive of it, of her mother's artwork. What does her mom do, do is for art? I can't even remember. She's a sculptor. She's a sculptor. Oh, and right. yeah, and her daughter thinks it's bad. It's like, this, this isn't good art. Mm. So, so yeah, that, that kind of reinforces that Spartan mentality. Uh, yeah, that, like, yeah, this is this is absolutely worthless to me. Mm-hmm. And the Spartans were a kind of communist as well. That yep. that sort of comes into the the story a little bit, just how, how things work down on the planet, how things work on uh, on, the ship. on the ship. Yeah, they don't have a a great system. The other difference between the Spartans and, and these the society is that the Spartans didn't have some like technological know how, some bank of knowledge, right? That that they were lording over uh, the people around them as much as they had, you know, the the physical means of lording it over them, and that seems to be the the real thing as well. Like I was thinking, this is kind of a bullshit society because all they need to do, all these other ships too, right? This is only the one ship we saw. All these other ships, all they need to do is have one defector. If if it's truly just a a piece of knowledge that these these planets need one defector with a thumb drive, right? One Edward <laughs> yeah. Snowden yeah. who can leak all the technical information that they've been repressed. And I was thinking, when is this book going to deal with that? That aspect that knowledge isn't just about a, a bunch of books, because you know, no matter how how much we think you know we're smart and advanced and all that stuff. Um, sorry, I can't. I can't. Uh, do, I can't build any of the technology I'm using, right? It's a set of skills, not just a set of knowledge. Yeah, and but they do mention that, don't they? Isn't I think they call it, it's not just knowledge and technology, it's the expertise sure. as well that they're right. holding back. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we get that in a guy like George, right, who I, I quite liked as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the executor, the, yeah. the hangman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, a, he's the one who executes Tintera. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting that they also sort of um, blame the colonists for not having the information as well. Like, kind of like, well, it's not our fault if they forget their history. And that's right. <laughs> it, it, they brought on themselves. Yeah. Yeah, even though they're sitting on it like a like an egg, and they won't. <laughs> so, the, what do we think about the father? Because he, for for a long time, he's sort of an, an enigma, right? We we know he's powerful on the. On the, he's sort of a one of the two kings sort of guys mm-hmm. on the on the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's says don't call them mud eaters, right? Uh-huh. Um, but he he still treats them as helots, right? They are the they are sort of to be looked down on. And when when we get earlier visits to the the planet with the the ocean, uh-huh. I was like. Well, yeah, the kids are mean. <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't get like what was going on there, but uh, it is. It's like um, this is unequal trade. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 definitely they're overawing. What what struck me on this reread is how how and I appreciate this how slowly our narrator learns just how important her father is because at the beginning you don't get a sense at all who her father is, what he does, or right. why should anyone care, but. As as the novel progresses and they move and more people start visiting and she starts and it's, fi- it's finally dropped on her that he's the head of the council now, but she doesn't even quite realize what that means. It's only really 
as she's she gets educated by basically her father's uh, antagonist, that she really comes to understand who her father is, how powerful he is, and what an influence he's had on the ship and on her life. And it gives her the chance to try and forge her own identity in the shadow of her overwhelming father. But she really doesn't. I mean, this is, if, if I could channel Eric Rabkin for a minute, mm-hmm. you ask about the father, who is always daddy. Right? Always right. daddy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so Eric, if he were here, would, would quickly uh, see the Oedipal triangle here. And what's interesting is we have, um, we have the father, we have the mother, we have the child, and we also have a love interest. Right? So it's, it's pretty classic. But what happens mm-hmm. is the... Um, you know, this is tricky because it's a female child, and Freud was always weaker on that. But the, what was, she doesn't manage to connect with her mother. She doesn't manage to fight and overwhelm her mother. She doesn't manage to win her father's attention, although she does have his respect. Um, she loses in the final battle. She votes against what the what her father chooses for, um, uh-huh. and she's basically in a kind of internal exile as a result. Uh, she does have the romance um, with. Uh, uh, the French name, uh, Peta. Yeah, Peta. Uh, that's not what it's uh, <laughs> And she does rescue, right? Um, but she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't progress. This isn't uh, an Oedipal or electoral romance in that sense. Um, it's yeah. He's kind of a blank. Uh, I mean, well, but also, but, but not completely. Uh, fathers are supposed to be the embodiments of of rule. Oh, I meant the boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I mean, and so the father does have that as well. He's the uh, enforcer of rules, and he makes the argument for them throughout the book. You know, we can't do that because it's against the rules. And he's also powerful. Remember the thing about freezing her, which is a really cute trick until you find right. it more and more. That's a real, hmm. It's a, but he, he also uh, gives her to the tutor, who he knows has the opposite um, political leanings. I don't think they're as opposite as we all want to say, yeah. right? Yeah. We want him to be more opposite. He seems like a, but that that's a Spartan thing too, right? Uh, the kings, or even yeah. a Greek thing, right? And the Romans did that as well. Two consuls, hostages. You just right. You you strength through, you know. You you, you embrace your enemy with your children, right? Oh, uh, and they're not even really enemies. They're just rivals. Rival, yeah, rivals. Yeah. Well, you can imagine too on a ship like this if. Um, they seem to have everything figured out, but it is one that they, they see themselves needing. What, what's the phrase? Is it moral discipline? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. So they really can't afford to have uh, open factional fighting. That's right. Well, a lot of energy gets channeled early into this whole trial thing because it even even setting aside the horribleness of what happened on this trial, previous trials, it's clear that there's there's deaths and losses. It's it, it's a win. It's a winnowing out. It's a it's a channeling of people towards a particular viewpoint and a particular and and that at society. I mean, the trial is not only about can you survive. It's like, are you worthy? Are you human? I I, I kept thinking this mm-hmm. time of uh, Dune and and the uh, right. and the pain box. Like, are you human? You are yeah. yeah. human. Yeah, yeah right. eaters. And if you want if you want to be uh, the perpetual rulers, you you have to winnow your caste, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's why we have uh, higher education. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh. 
oh. don't seem to work that way no more. Oh, it does work that but, way in the U.S. Well, in a certain power. sense. Uh, it's, well, time will tell, right? Uh, it's telling. But, the, um, <laughs> but he's also, you know, he's have arrow. He, and we get that nice rebus in the middle of the book where he does have the yeah. arrow. He has the power uh, and the direction. Uh, and the military might. I guess this is this is one aspect where I'm not fully convinced about being Sparta, um, because it's not a ship of war. Um, it's it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, in that it looks really relaxed. You know, Next Generation, right. wearing pajamas. The the bridge right. looks like a rec room. It's a lounge. Yeah, right. It's got a totally useless uh, therapist on the on the bridge. You know, God, is she you. <laughs> It's for sense hostility. Oh God! But uh, uh, but but at the same time, it's a vessel of war, and this is something which I've always criticized Next Generation for. Is they never managed to combine that. You know, we're all relaxed, and by the way, we can wipe out planets, and they never really you know connect that. And so that's what Deep Space Nine is for. But even the whole and Voyager and basically everything in Star Trek ever since. But um, but this is uh, this reminds me of, of that in that it's. They're not at war. They don't have enemies. They don't have um, battle as a as part of the trial. Remember, people can just turtle, and there's no. Well, that that's, but that's how the Spartans, right? What did they? The Spartans they ritualistically every year declared war on the Helots, right? It had nothing to do with, you know, the, the, them actually literally being at war because this is not a war of you know. Uh, two nations against another. It's a war of one nation against the others. That's that's where the Hunger Games sort of aspect no, comes not, in again. It's right? not. It's not a. It's not that kind of war. Um, I mean, you think about uh, when they have their adventure outside the uh, asteroid ship, um, and they put on the spacesuits. And there's an interesting right. description which is the spacesuits were designed for war, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Back in the day, but they're no longer useful for that. That world is gone. But they're actually pretty useful for going around outside. So it may look like, you know, we have the remnants of war, but they're not doing it. You know, there was a, when you talk about the turtles and the tiger, that whole thing, um, and, and they tell them, you know, you go down, you could be, you could be a turtle, and, and, and turtles live 150 years, tigers don't live that long, and so they encourage them to be tigers and, like, you know, warlike. Yes. But it seems to me that, that the ship itself is a turtle. Like, they mm. live for a long time, but they're not doing anything. Like, they might think that they're... You know, so strong and and well, war. If you say warlike, but they're really stagnated there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're not making any changes. They're not making any art. Mm-hmm. Until the yeah. that very last chapter. Mm-hmm. Right. No. Well, the, to I preserve think that, their li- their their you know long life. Yeah. But we're also seeing we're also seeing it from you know the wrong perspective to see that a lot of the reality of what's going on. Right. We're seeing yeah. it from. A, a kid's perspective for the most most of the book. She doesn't. She didn't even know that they had certain levels of the ship that she'd never been to. She doesn't. Right. She she's in. But she doesn't know what her dad does most of the time. And so when we finally get that vote at the end, what the vote is is something that she couldn't have participated in, I guess, before. Um, it's it's a resolution to you know wipe out a planet. Be, to to demonstrate the power right so we don't know what the outside of this spaceship really looks like it could be bristling with nuclear weapons um probably it is yeah uh, it's, it's gotta have planet killers you know if, yeah. they, if they have the capacity to wipe out a, a planetary civilization they have to have some heavy weaponry 
it, it makes me think that it's less tunnel in the sky and more universe. Well, uh, because, mind, because what do the scout ships look like? Yeah, they're flying saucers. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Forbidden Planet. Right. I mean, the the humans appear from the sky and they land in flying saucers. That's right. So you think about Forbidden Planet, or you think about uh, Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, for the 1960s, coming down on a UFO is either a bad sign, or it's a, like Forbidden Planet, it's a nice inverse. It's a nice, hmm, how would that work? Um, I, I agree they have, that, they have that capacity, which is why I mentioned the next generation, but it's not part of their society. They're not trained for war. They don't talk about war. I mean, they're, uh, later on in the book, they mention, if I can paraphrase, they don't want to become like the ship in Wally. Uh, mm. You know, they, they don't want to become too easy, but apparently they really are. They're, they're like um, a negative version of the utopia in Ian Banks's culture, you know, where the AIs take care of things, the machines take care mm. of things, but we just, you know, but they don't do anything with it. Mm. And there's a great, I've got the Kindle edition, and one of the things I love about reading on the Kindle is looking at uh, popular notes. You guys mm-hmm. this feature? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. And, uh, and one of them is um, that uh, note about in the final, in the final debate, uh, we, the worst thing in the world, how's it go? The worst thing in the world is to know you could be more and to choose not to. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is definitely something aimed, you know, it's a classic young adult line. Uh, okay, it's an affront to God, but more than that is an affront to ourselves. I can mm. think of nothing sadder than to know that you might be more than you are but be willing to make to be unwilling to make the effort, and you know, that makes me think of the one thing that's really missing from from this society that uh, I'm sure someone else would be better at criticizing than me. But it's it's uh, completely secular, is it not? Mm-hmm. There's no religious yep. aspect to anything they do. Oh, yeah, yep. true. No. Yeah, that, 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 that's that, a whole that, 1960s. Oh, we're going to get past religion, sort of thing in science mm-hmm. fiction. I think it might be a you know like mm-hmm. I'm not a. I'm not a Christian, and a lot of them, you know, I I spend a lot of time around them, and the, this is the sort of thing where th- they would say that's the criticism, right? That the only thing that holds them back from eugenics and from the horror that they're about to inflict on, on on basically a world that didn't do diddly squat to them, right? Well, they they yeah. they, stole, they stole a scout ship. They oh no, they they killed, they, they yeah. imprisoned <laughs> and killed members of the. The ship, a collective guilt, right? Well, so, oh, oh like, yeah, it's collective. Oh, it's, collect- it's bullshit, right? It's complete bullshit. Some some guy put a, one of your kids in jail. Boo hoo. Well, didn't they say they lost like more than half of the kids that went down? For- I'm not agreeing. Yep. <laughs> Excuse me, who asked them to plant all these <laughs> like, kids all over their planet? Yeah. And <laughs> all the well, including Attila. That was what really made me sad. The kid named Attila. Who that line? She's like, huh? Wonder what my name means. Yeah. Um, yeah, because this was mentioned, this planet hadn't been visited in a while by this ship, so they had no idea what to expect. So it, it was it wasn't a, it wasn't like the planet, the ocean planet early on, where they had had plenty right. of contact. This was mm-hmm. this was uh, terra incognita, and as there were, and clearly this this planet had dealings with other ships and had overwhelmed enough to get us get a scout ship and. Try to insert itself, and for that, yeah. Yeah. it has to be smacked down. Um, I believe there was a, a, a couple other lines in here that make it less universe and more 
uh, have uh, not have spacesuit won't travel. Um, Tunnel in the sky. Um, anybody who hasn't read Tunnel in the Sky, hands up. I haven't. My hand is up. You guys got to read Tunnel in the Sky. It's a great Heinlein novel. I read the first half. <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the points, um, Rod, the main character of that, turns out this is what uh, Heinlein is always doing. Turns out he's black, right? Um, so we. Yeah, well, that's the thing is in here she talks about how um, her tutor says uh, my my ancestors were persecuted. So this isn't a racist thing. And she says, but your 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 skin's lighter than mine, right? So yeah, she's black too. So this isn't about racism. It's about our to- our team versus your team, our culture versus your culture. And it makes me think about when they when Mia does go down to the planet with her dad um, and George. And she goes out on the boat uh, and fall, gets knocked into the water, and the kids are mean. I, I mean, I've experienced little things like that when I was a kid, and yeah, it's it's terrible. But um, his uh, the dad didn't didn't kill the whole planet because of that, right? But on the other hand, um, I think that it was his way of saying, "Look, you're one of the princes. You know, you, I'm the uh-huh. king. When you go with me." This is what you got to deal with. You got to stand up for yourself. You got to be dignified. You got to be tough. Um, and yes, there's a time when we will destroy them, destroy them completely. But right now, they're useful. For them. <laughs> well, they're and useful. that's that's not clear at all at that point in the book. No. I, I wanted to introduce some more historical context, but I fear that I'm dominating the conversation. Can can would somebody else like to jump ahead, or or should I just plow ahead? Go, for Go ahead. It. Well, I'm thinking of, uh, and this is this is partly an American thing. Um, and after all, this is a guy from Michigan, where I lived for a while, so you know I, I sympathize with him. Um, one context is that this is occurring right during a period of massive civil unrest in the United States. I mean, far far greater than anything we've seen right now. I mean, people talk about you know Trump unrest. We're we're nowhere near this right now. Um, this is when you have, you have active shooting, you have cities burning. But a key dimension of that is that there was, um, starting in 1965, the Johnson administration decided to end poverty. And he declared a war on poverty, declared the Great Society. And this is where a whole ton of massive government programs came out, Medicare, Medicaid. And the target for this was two. It was the urban poor trying to, you know, the, the whole thing of inner cities. When you hear Trump talk about inner cities that's because he's this is when he was formed mm, right but also the rural poor um appalachia was an incredible uh image of squalor and uh depression in the middle of a high-tech world striding society and oh, so yeah. you have this you have this strong impulse to uh take the great wealth of the society. i mean johnson calls it the great society program and to redistribute that down and, you know, Republicans have, have been fighting it ever since. And that's part of what's on, on the table this month in the U.S. Um, but thinking about that, you know, you have the ships, which are like, say, uh, you know, universities, because they have the knowledge. They, mm-hmm. are, they are the cultured centers. Uh, so you think, say, you know, in the U.S., whatever you want, you know, Chicago, New York, Washington. Um, they have the power. And uh, they're just riding roughshod over Appalachia which is, say, you know, the rest of the world. And they, they throw people down there. I mean, having the kids do their trials there is like deliverance. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the city slickers who go into the backwoods. 
and surprise, they meet people who don't love them at first, you know, or they yeah. love them their way. But it's um, in a very controlled way as well, because even the the history of the ships is that um, they're they're not going to join that struggle that everyone else is having to try and establish a world, and they're like, no, you guys will fight for that, and we'll just sit on the knowledge. Right. And have this kind of power that they just will use in very controlled doses, but not really become a part of the struggle. And well, we we had a lot of ways of doing that. I mean, you think you know, this is this is before the internet, so you think about you know the, that you'd have to go to a big city to get good bookstores and great libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is also before uh, higher education really expanded. So this is where people would have a hard time getting into a major university. This is before, I mean, the number of universities and colleges in the U.S. at the time was about one-third what it is now. Um, this is before the federal government took a role in getting financial aid to students. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting echo, and I think one that would have felt very present to readers at the time. I haven't checked out reviews, but I would like to. Now, now I'm thinking of uh, Nnedi Okorokor's Binti, which is a novella where Binti is a uh, brilliant young mathematician she lives in a tribe in africa and she's accepted to go to a uni- the greatest university in the galaxy off planet and her tribe obviously doesn't want her to leave her society and go quote go, go, go to the big city but she wants to pursue her dreams there and so there's a tension between her and her family and within herself as she leaves her society leaves that rural quote, quote, backwater i'm putting in quotes because they're not quite as backward as you might think to go to that greater society and face the challenges. And in the sequel, uh, Binti Home, which I think just came out not too long ago, she goes back to her home and finds that you can't really go home again because she's been changed by that experience and they treat her very differently as a result of her having left that society and have come come back. Mm. So this is almost the reverse where, yeah, yeah, she's going out and then coming back slightly changed. Mm Mm-hmm. Back to the more elite society. I want to submit this uh, this passage. It's I'm reading it from the Down to the Worlds of Men section uh, of the book, part three, and see what you guys think of it. Because I, I, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I'm very interested in what, what happens. So this is the section where she's down on the mud eater planet and she's holed up with some dude who treats her like a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, yeah, the dissident. Uh, Good stuff. Right. Good stuff. See if I can find my spot here. Um, all right. Uh, darn it! I just lost my. <laughs> oh, here it is. Okay. Um, he gave me lessons before he let me go outside of town. Women were second-class citizens around here, but prejudice of that sort wasn't in Mister Kustov. And then uh, I'm going to skip ahead as she goes to town. Says. Um, uh, she, okay, here it is. Though you may think it strange, my first stop was the library. I found that it helps to be well-researched. I got what I could from Mr. Kustoff's books during the first days while he was outdoors working in his garden. In his library, I found a novel that he had written. And I always like books that are write, written inside of novels. Right. Um, in his library, I found a novel that he had written himself called The White Way, W-H-I-T-E. He said, it took me 40 years to write it, and I have spent 42 years living with the pol- political repercussions. It has, it, had, it has been an interesting 42 years, but I am not sure that I would do it again. Read the book if you'd be interested. I did read it, 
though I couldn't understand what the fuss was about. <laughs> this is the uh, my first analysis of this book. It seemed like, why is it winning a nebula? It, it seemed reasonable to me, but the mud eaters were crazy anyways. I couldn't help but think he and Daddy would have found a lot in common. They were both fine, tough-minded people, and though you would never know it to look at them, they were the same age, except that at the age of 80, Mr. Kutsov was old, and the age of 80, Daddy was not. Yeah, that comes up earlier when uh, she's on the water world and uh, says, oh, yeah, my dad's 80, you know, he's fine. Right. And the kids are, what? How could that be? <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're a liar. So right. why do you think it's called the white way? Do you think it's a pun about the right way? Do you think it's a uh, I think I think that this is a, a guy. I mean, think of think of what's happening down on that planet, right? Um, it's It reminds me a lot of what's actually going on in the other story we're going to talk about today, the chromium fence. Uh-huh. Um, in that uh, there's sort of factions that are fighting each other and the, f- the factions uh, are doing pogroms basically mm-hmm. um, one gets in they go and they they put sort of people in, in the truck and take them off to the death camp or whatever it is um, what what's the what's the point of that well this guy writes a book that gets him into trouble but it doesn't seem to be like I'm I've done something horrific. Like we don't know much about this guy, uh, this uh, pseudo father father figure, Kutsov, right? Um, but what we do know is that he seems to have had a daughter. Yeah. Uh, and she's gone. Uh-huh. So what happened? Is my question. Mm. Like, there's the horror that's going on down on the planets is, you know, not preferable to what's going up on the ship. But the interaction between them, there's there's something interesting going on there. I'm just not sure how to. Like, I I would kind of say, you know, this is why sequels happen, because <laughs> we don't know some of the answers to some of our questions. What's going on on the other ships? Um, is there never going to be a revolution? This is why there's a second Hunger Games and a third Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, it it seemed to me that people on the planet aren't that much. I mean, they, they're in totally different circumstances from the people from the ship. But as soon as they get down to a planet, they find the, the local humanoids and enslave them. Like, right. they do the same thing. That the people it, the it's sort of a microcosm of yeah. the ship. Yes. Yeah, so it's like, the, okay, you just, different, same people, different circumstances. But see, that's not the thing that says, like, you say, oh, they, they have a little debate about that. Um well, are, are you mean they're slaving? Oh, terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is hilarious because it's what they're doing. But we're allowed to do it. They're not allowed to do it. And then the, the, their great sin is that they're breeding, right, uncontrollably. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Goes back to eugenics again. It does. And, of course, that is also the sin uh, that the helots are being punished for, right? Don't let the population get too high. Because we, we have uh, – the, the problem with the Spartans is they're harsh society, right? Their, their discipline, their um, trials kill a lot of their people, right? The Spartans don't have the numbers because getting the society too big causes problems. Getting the uh, soldiers um, up to a certain level of awesomeness, you can't do that if everybody's – uh, allowed in, so they're always winnowing, but I, and that means they have to keep the other numbers down. But I got to say that that's that's something that makes perfect sense for a novel in 1968, uh, in terms of genre 
in terms of popular concerns. This is when the population bomb is being talked about. Right. Uh, right. Make room, make room is two years yep. early. Uh, mm-hmm. This is when um, the Club of Rome, uh, which famously publishes this book, Seeing Starvation Within 20 Years, um, is founded in 1968. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that in my lifetime, I mean, I just turned 50, I can see how we went from being terrified about overpopulation to really having the opposite mentality right now. <laughs> uh, and that's you know, and so it it's interesting to see that. Um, and I think it might seem kind of her. I, I don't think that would have been quite as horrifically weird in 1968 as it does now. Um, right. You know, you. But I mean, it's their own. Uh, see, on their ship, right? They have a certain number of quarters, and in fact, we know that they've their population is is sort of shrunk because of that sixth level, right? And and the fact that half the neighbors quarters are, are empty right. and they have dorms and they don't have to use them right so the population on the ship is shrinking but on a planet one of those rough hewn planets with with you know log cabins and sheriff's offices what kind of concern is that it's it's right. it's well, well, I, I, well here's here's the here here here's where it comes down to they remember they talk about how Earth went to pot and That's Earth true. went to pot because of overpopulation and, 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 and the use and the overuse of resources and that's considered a magnificent horror by the president ship. They don't want any of these planets to turn out like Earth did. There you go. So and they don't want to turn themselves like Earth did. Overpop stinking breeding and uh, dying of uh, limited resources. So. Of course. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Brian. This goes back to the whole Club of Rome and the and the concerns of the '60s. Like we're going to breed ourselves to death, and so this is a reaction to that. Like no, that that is a horror because we don't want that that the horror of Earth to be visited upon to terror or anywhere else. So uh, the uh, I think one of the nice symbols that our heroine makes herself a heroine out to be is when she talks about how what she did was wrong when she's talking about the being a, or at least not a hundred percent right. Talking about being a killing a spear carrier, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about how she, I think she said something about wanting to read a, a book from the perspective of a spear carrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And how there are no real spear carriers. Yeah. There's a, a really, I don't know. It's a great movie, but there's an iconic scene in, in uh, one of the Austin Powers movies where one of the James Bond villain uh, henchmen gets thrown into a, a pit and, you know, he should just be dead if it's a James Bond movie. It's sort of a comical scene. But he falls down into the pit and says, uh, I'm I'm still alive! Yeah. <laughs> I'm badly burned, but I'm still alive! <laughs> and Austin Powers starts to feel like, oh, mm, mm, this doesn't feel so good. Right? That, that whole thing is the there is a theme going on here about how, you know, it's fun to hold a gun and it's fun to pull the trigger, but when you kill people, they're really dead. And when Mia comes back to the ship with one of these old fastened six shooters, uh, one of the other boys, Riggy says, Hey, can I see that for a minute? And can I trade you something for it? And she's like, no, you can have it. Yep. Cause she's not interested in it. And, it's some kind of token of hope, but it <laughs> she is not the revolutionary that 
that we want her to be either. No. I don't. Oh, I don't feel that way. I mean, she's, she's trying to work a- through it. She's like, even in her ethics lessons and stuff, she's like grappling with the worth of a human life, and right. she's she's like slowly working through it. But we just don't really see, um, yeah, any like huge change in her in her actions. And I think I think that that's even like a a more searing indictment because, mm. um, in a certain sense, right. Yeah, you're a human being and you you kill people, but you come home, you kiss your mom, you kiss your 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 boyfriend and and you just go on with your life. And it's like but that society's doing those cuz I I, I I I have two two observations cuz I'm I'm digging this book more than I thought I would. I, I've never read it. Um like before. I, I read I'm grateful for the chance to. Yeah, it was it was a good book. The um um and, you know one personal observation is uh i don't like young adult fiction i i don't read it for fun i uh no um i read a bunch of it because my children went through that and i would read books with them or read books to them um mm-hmm. in fact you know i'm if you guys like harry potter you know for a while i went as hagrid to halloween costumes so, uh, <laughs> i could say that no you yeah. Yeah, really could. but the um so i don't uh, i don't have pleasure in reading young adult per se i do I did like historically thinking about this as a kind of transition book between the Highland juveniles from the fifties and the, you know, rise of young adult fiction in the seventies. Um, so that was fun. But the other, the other thing, uh, not to be too historical about this, but is the 1960s is a kind of clinch moment for anti-colonialism. This is where the great European colonies around the world are continuing to throw off their shackles and the U S is playing that role. And this is one of the ways that people analyze the U.S. role in Vietnam, which peaks in 1968 with the greatest mm. number of troops, um, and is as a colonial move. There's a there's a you know, the, you know, the U.S. is a colonial power or picking up the uh, role of colonial power in Southeast Asia, uh, and you have you know, uprisings across North Africa against the French in uh, Central Africa against the British against each other. Um, the you know the, the Chinese are claiming to be the great anti-colonial uh, liberators. Uh, the Soviet Union is proclaiming itself to be in that role, um, you know, sending influence around the world. And in the U.S., again, the culture that this you know, book comes from, uh, this is an object of fierce debate. That's why you have you know, students at universities who are waving Viet Cong flags um, you know, to drive their elders completely insane. Uh, and this is also where you have anti-colonialist pedagogy. People are reading Paulo Freire, thinking about you know, how can we undo colonialism. And again, we come back to a contemporary story. Ursula Le Guin's uh, The Word for the World is Forest. You know, it's a Vietnam analog where mm-hmm. the humans go to another planet which is populated by um, you know, rural people and exploit the hell out of them. Um, which, by That's the way, w- was completely ripped off, among other rip-offs, by James Cameron in uh, his Avatar movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amongst other things ripping off into yeah. that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, thinking about this book in, in that context, in a society thinking about colonialism, concerned about it, fighting about it, um, you know, it's clearly a case of colonialism, you know, where we have the advanced society that has structured its universe for its benefit based on the exploitation of all these other people. And it's, uh, it, had, it maintains this in complex ways, including the potential military power, economic inequality, knowledge inequality, not to mention the intertwined social nature where we have the, you know, the kids, you, you know, doing trials in all these planets, um, it's it's definitely uh, an anti-colonialist novel, with where the anti-colonialists fail at the end of it. 
Yeah, I also I liked how the um, the structure of it kind of gives you that feeling of how people can be in a society that's doing that kind of thing mm-hmm. and not really yeah um, realize what's going on because almost the whole book is that kind of playful light tone that we were talking about. Even though you get these kind of hints that it's like, man, these people are kind of doing some horrible things, and it's mm-hmm. not until like the very last chapter that like the epilogue is where you kind of see like everything like brought to the extreme and how bad these, like what the society will do to the colonists. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of structured that way. So she's just waking up out of this kind of bubble. Just like, as you do, like in real life, you kind of like, you live in this happy little world and you're like, Oh, we're doing that. That's, that's my mm-hmm. society doing that stuff. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it, yeah. This novel. Well, this so. novel is an awakening in many ways for the reader as well as for yeah. as for the protagonist. Like go along, go along, grow, 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 grow. Wait, we do that sort of thing. Oh, wait, we are doing that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. We're Very voting slow. for it. Uh-huh. Yeah. My, I wanna. I wanna. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot this week based on these two stories. Um, I want to tell you guys my best friend. One of my best friends in. Uh, for a while, my best friend in high school or middle school or whatever they called it back then, um, his dad was from Germany. And uh, I, I knew that because he had a German accent and his mom had a German accent and their kids had German names, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm over at his house one day and I'm like, I'm doing the math. And your dad was alive during World War II. And he says, oh, yeah, he was he was he was a little kid. And it's like, was he in the Hitler Youth? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah, of course. Everybody was. Everybody was, yeah. right? And that's the, I mean, did he get, you know, behind an MG42 and start shooting at Americans pouring over the Rhine? No. But he was, uh, you know, had he been a couple of years older, he would have been. And that is, like, freaky. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah. kind of similar to... Um, Jordan Peterson's arguments about that, right? Like that mm-hmm. they're not even like they're not evil people. It's just good kids growing up in the society, and then that's what your society is doing right now. Like, okay, you just go along with it, and- fight against it, try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It don't work. Yeah, I mean the the, the mechanisms are not in place. So uh, her Mia's big rebellion is to to vote against what her father would want. Yeah, yeah, that's depressing. And she fails. And she fails. And she fails, but maybe the reforms of her tutor uh, will help in subsequent. Like that's no that's no reform. <laughs> it's not is, the revolution we're looking for. But it's also because it's a young adult novel. It's not one of necessarily a revolution. I mean, it's it's not. Um, this isn't uh, the Heinlein. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the Revolution in America, twenty one hundred. Twenty one hundred. Yeah, it's not that. This is this is have space. It will travel. Right. And I think there's actually a direct echo of the end of Half Space You Will Travel. Um, because that doesn't that conclude with a big interstellar debate about whether or not to remove the planet from the universe? Oh, right. That's yep. right. They're, they're a lot of trouble, but this little girl, or little boy, and her brother, or whatever. <laughs> it's been a while since I read. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.